A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. Two unlikely friends take on the world. I made my boyfriend watch Milk last night. Have you seen it? Oh, really? Great film, that is. Right, well, you say that, but James was like, oh, this is really slow, and then fell asleep. And I was so angry. I was like, what? Gay rights are slow. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Me and James tried to watch Tales of the City in, in Northern Ireland, and within like two minutes of it, James was like, oh, this is so... What's going on here? Like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's not the same, is it? <laughs> you know, it's exactly the same. No, it's not. It's exactly the same. City is entirely fictional. And, you know, I rate the works of Armistead Morpin. But Milk is a historical... This shit happened. I mean, I'm probably being a little sensitive, but it is LGBT History Month. And young people have no respect. <laughs> He's 10 years younger than me. And I feel like he needs to know. Because we're not taught gay history. You know, we have to find it for ourselves. It's not taught to us. Yeah, I didn't know about Harvey Milk until I watched Milk. No, same. And yet he was the first gay man, openly gay man, to be admitted to office in the United States. And now here we are in 2021 and we've only just got the first member of the cabinet, the first gay member of the cabinet in the USA. Amazing, but my God, that took a long time. A bit like the film Milk, apparently, according to your (laughs) boyfriend. (laughs) Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. It's LGBT History Month in the UK. It is, yeah. And today we are joined by LGBTQ plus historian and activist Lisa Power. Yes. Um, She has done everything. She's been a lesbian activist since 1970. She's been an activist since 1970. (laughs) I'm glad you corrected that because I thought that was strange. She's always been a lesbian, but she's been a lesbian activist since 1970. She's been a volunteer for the Lesbian and Gay Switchboard, Secretary General of the International Lesbian and Gay Association. She's actually one of the co-founders of Stonewall, the LGBTQ plus rights charity in the UK. She was policy director at the Terence Higgins Trust and the first open openly gay person to speak at the United Nations. So today we're going to talk about medieval gays, the hidden LGBTQ plus people in history, the early days of Switchboard, the early days of Stonewall. And of course, it's a sin, which she was actually a fact checker on. So she was the person that they would phone up and say, yo, is this accurate? When did this happen? Lisa's also recommended loads of LGBT history resources for you to check out. And you can see those in the episode notes. Right, let's do it. This is Lisa Power. A gay and a non-gay. Now, I often refer to lesbians as power lesbians. And your surname actually is Power. So I'm wondering <laughs> if Lisa Power is the reason people call lesbians power lesbians. That would be lovely. But I have to confess that power is a taken name. Um, (laughs) In the early 80s, when uh, lesbian feminists were, or not just lesbian feminists, all kinds of feminists were trying to reduce the uh, amount of the patriarchy in their life or something like that, a whole load of us changed our surnames from the ones that we had from our fathers. An awful lot of women changed their names to sort of tree woman and moonbeam and things like that and I kind of looked at that and I thought in another decade you're going to have to depoll your name back again mate because you'll be embarrassed and I thought what do women need and I thought I don't want to call myself Lisa Money so I'm going to call myself Lisa Power. Oh that's an amazing story. 
You've been described as a walking history book when it comes to LGBT plus life. No, I'm just a mildly elderly dyke who likes interfering in things. (laughs) (laughs) Is this your favourite month, though, in the UK, LGBT history month? No, it's a bloody nightmare because you get everything (laughs) set up and then on the 1st of February, you get 50 panicked emails from people going, oh, it's history month, can you do this or that for us? And it's like, no, no, sorry already booked up i'm glad that we booked you just ahead of the first of feb then (laughs) (laughs) yeah 29th of january (laughs) it's not usually as bad as this year because this year we've had it's a sin and the whole of the lgbt world appears to be reeling a bit from it's a sin because it's a really true representation of the 80s for people who were in the centre of what was the beginning AIDS epidemic. So that that's really made a difference this, this history month. And I think a lot of people are beginning to realise we've got a lot of history that people don't know about. You know, it's not just the ladies of Langoughlin and, um, and uh, Alan Turing. There's a lot more to it. But history month, I mean, I really love it. I was actually, I'm a trained historian, bizarrely. I did medieval history at university. Were there <laughs> gays in medieval history? Certainly, absolutely. I was reading a story this morning about somebody, the records from then characterise him as a man who also cross-dressed in women's clothes and he hung out in a particular area of London and was known as a sex worker servicing both monks and nuns. Monks <laughs> and nuns. They were living their best life. Centuries ago, it was fine to be gay, wasn't it? I mean, and like the ancient Greeks were at it and nobody batted an eyelid. Well, I, I, there's propaganda all over the place. Uh, about it being appalling or wonderful at different times. And I think, you know, it's swung around a lot over the years. And we're very good at forgetting when it was okay, unless we actually, you know, make a big fuss about it. I mean, the the ancient Greeks were idolised by some of the gay men at the turn of the, the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century. You know, it became code. You could talk about that and you were actually talking about being gay now, but they would would use it as as a sort of marker. Um, You know, we we actually have lost a lot of much more recent gay history. I mean, most people don't realise now that Weimar Germany, before Hitler, before the Nazis, Weimar Germany was the most spectacularly pro-gay society we've probably ever seen for a brief flourishing. Um, But then the Nazis appeared. And this is, I think, a lesson we all need to learn from because we're always, no matter how good things get, we're 10 years away from the Nazis' concentration camps and book burnings. Wow, that's... uh, And there was a huge amount of social research and support for trans people as well in Weimar Germany. And all of that was... All the records of the Magnus Hirschfeld Institute were burnt by the Nazis. I mean, I know I'm going to sound incredibly gay here. My only knowledge of that period of history is from the musical... Uh, cabaret. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not alone in that. A lot of people, uh, popular entertainment is despised by a lot of historians, but it's actually, it's absolutely brilliant. To go back to It's a Sin, literally um, this morning, a friend of mine made the remark online that he felt he watched it all and he felt like someone had been reading his diaries from the wow. time. And I remember when, when, um, Queer as Folk came out, a friend of mine saying, oh my God, now my mother knows my entire life. This is terrifying. <laughs> Don't want to talk to me about it. <laughs> and all of, our, all of our views of AIDS and of gay life, if we're not already part of it, are mediated through Philadelphia, Angels in America, some terrible American programs about gayness. You know, we're, we're um, coded in sitcoms a lot. It's quite distressing. And, and at the same time, if it's properly done, 
it's absolutely brilliant because it reaches far more people. You know, history is is in many ways often a despised subject these days, but it's actually fascinating if you see it as storytelling and finding out the truth about things. Well, I think it's despised, I suppose, in this country at least, because most of the history we learn is not really... Well, it's just all about World War Two. It doesn't include any of the, the slavery or no. the colonialism or the gay history. The popular picture that we have of British history is incredibly distorted at the moment and attempts to actually produce more of a rounded picture, get a huge backlash. I mean, the anger of some politicians about simply wanting to tell a wider story about where the money came from to build some of our stately homes. You know, why some people own vast tracts of land in London was because they owned vast tracts of slave worked land elsewhere in the first place. The fact that we've been paying off uh, the debt that we owed over compensating slave owners until very recently. People don't know any of this stuff. It's not surprising that they're a bit shocked when they find out and they think you're being horrible and subversive. That's bad, but queers have been even more hidden through history. What's the earliest documented gay British history? Who knows? There's probably stuff back to the Bronze Age if you can find, if you can look for wow. it or hints. What you have to cope with in LGBT plus history is uncertainty, but it's good uncertainty. Um, and when I started getting involved in history stuff in the 80s, it was a bit of a pain because in the 80s, we were in a mode where you were either lesbian and gay or you were straight. And it was pick a side and stick to it. We didn't want to talk about bisexuality. Uh, we didn't talk about transgender issues very much. We certainly didn't have anything to describe gender fluidity or anything or non-binary in the way that we do now. Um, and that meant that every time you did anything around queer history, it was kind of like a tug of war between straight or gay. Um, and which side did this person come down on? And quite often in the past, people have had quite complex identities. And so... Now, in the 21st century, we don't say this was, this must have been um, a gay relationship. And the fact that they had, you know, a partner of the opposite sex at this point, well, that was just social pressure. Um, now we can actually say through their life, they did this and they did this. And we don't know how they would have described themselves, but there's definitely same sex love in there. There is definitely same-sex attraction. And I find that much better because it enables us to be much more accurate and to be much more honest about the fact that a lot of history that we consume is simplifying very complex things into very simple boxes. And I really like not having to, to put someone's sexuality into a box that they would never have recognised. A gay and a non-gay. In t terms of your history, you started working on Switchboard in 1979. Yep, tail end of 79. What was that like back in the day? What were well, some of the calls about? It was fascinating because you never knew when you picked up the phone, you did not know what was going to be at the other end. A lot of what we did then was basic information. Um, unless you had the latest copy of gay news with the information insert in the middle of it. And gay news was quite hard to get hold of. It didn't have a really good distribution network and a lot of ordinary uh, news agents wouldn't stock it. Unless you had that, you had to phone switchboard. So I would take a call from somebody asking me whether there was a gay pub in Burnley, because they happened to be in Burnley for the night. Then I might take a call from somebody asking me what a particular colour in the hanky code was, because they'd just picked someone up and then started to wonder whether it had been appropriate or not. Wait, what's um, the, the hanky code meaning like what they're into and they wore a different yeah, colour? A lot of gay men in the 
bars would signal what they were into by a particular colour hanky and by whether it was in the right side or the left side. Oh. Um, and I knew what quite a lot of the colours meant, but my trouble was I used to get mixed up as to whether it was the left <laughs> side or the right side as to what they meant. So I, I'm afraid I may have dropped a few people in the lurch at some point. <laughs> so um, wait, what did this person's colour mean at the time, if well, you it was, remember? It was highly variable. I'm afraid I mainly remember the more naughty ones. So I remember that um, yellow was that they were into uh, golden showers, as we called them, yep. or weeing on each other, basically. Red was pretty heavy S&M and black was even heavier. Wow. Um, but there were a whole load. It was like duck egg blue, and people would go, I'm not sure whether his hanky's duck egg blue or cerulean blue. What's the <laughs> well, I don't know, but it, it really matters if you're into a particular thing. And then the next call might be somebody who'd just been arrested in a public toilet by a, a pretty policeman because the police used to up their arrest statistics by sending good-looking young policemen to stand around public toilets, and then somebody would be watching through a spy hole, and the minute someone showed interest, they'd nick them. Wow. So we might get that sort of call, or we might get a suicide call, or we might just get somebody who was 18 and wanted to know how to tell their parents they were gay. You literally had to be ready for anything on a shift. Hoax calls, yeah. The thing is, you have to always, you must always treat hoax calls as if they're genuine, mm. because there's just that little chance... He's what? ..that it is somebody. If somebody puts on a funny voice, it's possible they oh, speak I with a funny yeah. voice. Or they're nervous, or something no, like that. And it's better for you to get anyone, snubbed you know? by a hoaxer than for you to no, snub somebody who's in desperate need at any one given time. I love that clip. It's from 1979, and it's the singer and activist Tom Robinson doing a shift at Switchboard. Right, we're back with more from Lisa Power next. Welcome back to a gay and a non-gay. Today, we're chatting to LGBT historian Lisa Power. As we said, we're obsessed with It's a Sin. You can see how impactful it is because I'm still talking about it weeks, weeks on from watching it all in one go. And my mum is, and she's been sobbing. It was actually like a week and a half ago. (laughs) I know, but it feels like it's filled our minds so much since then. I literally have never, ever seen a public reaction to a TV series like this. I mean, I thought the reaction to Queer as Folk when it happened was strong. This is so big. There are loads of stories coming out of the woodwork. I mean, I do think it's brilliant on social media that loads of people who were, you know, the Jills or the Roscoes or whoever from the series are now telling stories that nobody's been interested in listening to for the past three, four decades. And now they're telling them and people are seizing on them. I mean, I was very interested. I, I had a pretty good idea from what I knew of the stuff I'd been asked to fact check, um, the bits of script that I'd seen. I knew this was going to be strong. I knew that my generation, who'd had something to do with it, would be dealing with with a lot of buried trauma. But I had no idea how young people might take it and whether people might be so sick of COVID that they wouldn't be interested or whether they would just think it was horribly exaggerated. But actually, it's had a brilliant reception and people are really, really interested to find out what, what mm. went on. Hence my mild explosion at the start about the idea of, of History Month being a good month because I'm, <laughs> I feel really mean this week. I keep telling people I'm really sorry. I can't do a talk for you at this kind of notice. Yeah, uh, But I wish I could because it's the first time anyone's been interested in that history who wasn't part of it. I have a few lesbian friends that I've seen on Twitter that wish there'd been a bit of an L focus in It's a Sin. Do you share those thoughts? Well, firstly, 
I mean, I'd spotted two lesbians in the show, and apparently there's three. Um, there is, uh, admittedly, um, some of it got cut. There is a very short bit with what I think is blatantly, obviously, lesbian nurse. I mean, hello, Butch. So, so that's one bit. But the solicitor is a lesbian, and I yeah. clocked her as lesbian ah. straight away. And, you know, people don't clock her as lesbian because she is a Muslim with a scarf. Wow. And I'm sorry, but that character was written as a dyke and played as dyke. Yeah, I, I didn't spot that either. And you're right, of course. That's before we even talk about compensation for testing my client's blood without permission. And there's a legal term for that too. Expensive. So Lisa, you were a consultant on It's a Sin. How accurate do you think it turned out? The sets, the clothing, the music, everything is perfect. And so many people that I know who were alive then have just gone, wow. It was a lot of fun, and we had those parties. And I knew a lot of those people, and I knew a lot of people who had taken risks and then got very scared. Um, and that's, that's you know, I was on switchboard, so I was seeing stuff in my private life, um, and I was also seeing everything that came into switchboard. And then, because I'd been on switchboard, but I'd also, for work, I'd been a, a worker in uh, drugs charities. And the other group that was hit early by AIDS in the UK was um, injecting drug users because it was even more transmissible through sharing needles, much more transmissible than by sex. So to, um, to people who were looking to hire people um, to do things around AIDS, someone who knew about drugs but wasn't a drug user and knew about gay men but wasn't a gay man because somehow they thought gay men were going to be trouble. Why they thought a lesbian would be less trouble is <laughs> completely beyond me. But it was kind of like I was, I was the saccharine version and I got hired almost immediately. I was one of the first AIDS bureaucrats in the country. And we, you know, I was in Hackney and we were, we were making five-year plans about AIDS when we barely knew, you know, a year's worth of information. And actually, we didn't do badly under the circumstances, but it was insane. I was in the environmental health department, which tells you what they thought about HIV there in those days. And I remember having to always pretend when I went to the canteen that I was from social services because environmental health had condemned our own canteen. And you got less chips if you were from environmental health. <laughs> what, because of AIDS? Well, no, be no, you got less chips because you were environmental health and they hated environmental health. Oh, I see. Not because there was no... Condemning their hygiene. No, oh, no. I see. Oh, no, once people found out I worked in AIDS, they wouldn't go near me. I mean, I remember a woman friend of mine who was straight bringing a boyfriend, dragging him down to meet me one day for a gossip uh, in my house. And the moment he realised this was a gay household, he put his cup down and wouldn't touch anything in the room. And and I I had, you know, occasionally I would have someone who seemed to be quite interested in being my girlfriend until she found out I worked in AIDS and didn't even ask what I did. I mean, basically, I was in my job. I was shuffling papers around. The people with AIDS I knew were mostly in my private life um, and on switchboard. But the moment they found out that I had a label of a job, you know, they would back away and not be so interested suddenly in being my girlfriend. People were bizarre. They thought, seemed to think you caught it by osmosis. I remember a television crew um, who was supposed to come in and film at Switchboard in maybe 85, 86, probably 85. And the moment they were told, they actually got to the building, got halfway up the stairs and were told that they were going to film in gay Switchboard. And they literally dropped all their equipment and left the premises. A gay and a non-gay. So you're also one of the founders of Stonewall. Um, where do you think we would be today without the work that Stonewall has done? Stonewall 
is massively responsible for most of the legislation that we have in the, the UK, which protects the rights of LGBT plus people now. And I think, you know, uh, there have been times when I've loved them, times when I've thought they've done things that were wrong, but I have the most immense love for them currently again. And I'm very fond of the time I have with them because we had no clue what we were doing. We had no clue that we were founding an organisation which would successfully turn Section... I mean, we, we, we were aiming at turning Section 28 on its head and getting rid of it. We knew that we wanted laws that gave us equality and the bedrock, you've got to remember, the bedrock of Stonewall was equality. It was reformist. And I'd always been part of the double denim, badge wearing, revolutionary crowd that said, you know, equality is just equal to what? You know, we want better. You know, we want liberation, not equality. But Stonewall was really clear. It was about equality. It was about getting in people from all over the spectrum because we lost Section 28 because we had no friends in the Tories and hardly any friends in Parliament at all. So setting it up as equality was important, but we never envisaged equal marriage. You know, we never talked about marriage because we couldn't actually believe that could ever happen. We envisioned equality, but not fully what that would mean. And Stonewall took it, embraced it. We also believed, I mean, in those days, gay organisations rose and fell in a year or two. Um, they, they said they were democratic, but what that actually meant was they had 60 people who shouted at each other um, and nobody joined because of that. Um, Stonewall correctly worked out that there was this massive hinterland across Britain of people who were lesbian or gay, who didn't want to put on um, badges and go and march, but they were quite happy to give a little bit of money every month, get a little newsletter, and maybe write to their MP once in a while. Um, and we exploited that mass of people who nobody in the existing gay movement had paid any attention to because we were all too busy trying to be more right on than each other. It was a more Joe Biden approach than, than Bernie Absolutely. Sanders. Absolutely. I mean, we, we had Tories from... I, I met my... Not my first gay Tories, but the, the first gay Tories that I ever spent time with in my own home through Stonewall, the wow. first gay policeman I ever met through Stonewall, the first gay people in the forces through Stonewall. Um, and one of our earliest things that we did was actually to try and overturn the rule against gays in the armed forces. And a lot of people in the existing lesbian and gay movement absolutely hated that because it was shoring up um, the system. But it was a huge symbolic win. And the beauty of it was that we knew that if we could get the top brass to change their minds, Ordinary soldiers, sailors and um, RAF people were fine about it. And, and, you know, when we got that through, it was as if there had never been a problem at all. I mean, there was no fuss. And that was such a, an important symbolic thing. But we knew, we absolutely knew that we were not going to get most of the stuff around age of consent and employment laws and protection and stuff like that until we got a different government. We were not going to get that out of Thatcher and Major. Major was actually really sympathetic, but scared of his own backyard. And frankly, you can say what you like about Tony Blair, and I say quite a lot about some of his later decisions, but that was a government that was prepared to actually do stuff about gay equality. Looking at the future from where you've come from, do you think we're in danger of a Section 28 again now, maybe especially for trans people? There are women who call themselves feminists, I don't think they're feminists, who have suggested that there should be a Section 28 for trans people. We're in the grip of a moral panic in this country about trans people at the moment, which is 
absolutely directly analogous to the moral panic in the press and politicians around lesbians and gay men in the 80s. It's all of the same arguments, all of the same slurs. People are worried about toilets, um, unwanted advances. They're worried about children being persuaded into a lifestyle. They think there's some massive trans lobby. I've got a friend who regularly posts pictures of her, her hallway and says, here's the real trans lobby. <laughs> you know, what are they talking about? And I have, I have some very harsh words to say for those of the people who fought alongside me in the 80s who've got sucked into that. I mean, I call it the queer anons, I'm afraid. It's insidious mm. and it plays upon victimhood and fears. So I think we're very close to that if we're not careful. We've actually, and I think this is a lot down to Stonewall and to uh, gay conservatives who came out, we have moved the dial so that the government doesn't like to do things that are obviously anti-gay, but they keep trying to do things that are anti-trans. I mean, just this week, there's been an announcement of an inquiry into provision of toilets. We've got a pandemic with the largest number of people dying in any country in the world per, per capita. We have got Brexit and an economic meltdown. Why the hell does the government think it's a priority to worry about men's and women's toilets? Mm. This is just nonsense. It really but it's is. exactly the way that they used lesbians and gay men in the 80s to distract from all of the chaos and economic problems that that have been happening then. Preach. Spill that tea. A lot of what we see on television is gay male history. And so I wonder, as a lesbian, if you could recommend amazing <laughs> books, films or TV shows for some of our listeners. Well, um, if we want more, we have to write it. I mean, I, I, I'm rather irritated at people who think that Russell is the only person who can write queer fiction. I mean, he's the best I've seen, but actually, you know, Gentleman Jack was amazing. There is this ability to erase lesbians, um, which is really annoying. Um, for example, there's, there's a new book out, which is all about um, the gay influence on popular music in England, basically, in the 60s. And it's all about gay men. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine if it is a book about the gay men who did that. But there were also lesbians there. Dusty Springfield's lover, who, who ran one of the main music programmes, there were other lesbians in the music industry. <laughs> Dusty Springfield is not only a dyke icon, but I, she was a massive dyke. <gasps> I mean, I know people who knew her. All that hair, that was weeks, love. She had short hair. So as it's LGBT History Month, would yeah. you... And I, and I would love you to choose a lesbian, actually. Who is someone that we really need to recognise in queer history in this country that we don't really think about? There are so many. Nancy Spain, who was a journalist, who um, was not out at all during her lifetime, um, but who was hugely influential in British society in the 50s. Everybody likes upper-class lesbians, so they go on and on about Vita Sackville West and um, you know Virginia Woolf and things, but let's have some more working-class dykes as well. And let's have some yeah. more butch dykes. <laughs> I love a good butch. Don't you love a good butch? <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't use that word. I wouldn't say the D word either. I'd be, I'd well, be worried you know, I'd offend someone. It, honestly, I loved, I'm really interested in terminology because I've lived long enough to see it keep moving around. Mm. Um, and for most of my life, I'd have been slapped across the head for using the word queer. But it's the yeah. only thing that covers all bases. And, my and, friend doesn't like being called a lesbian. So if I called her a dyke, I think she'd really hate me. Well, <laughs> honestly, I think, they're labels. They're stupid labels. 
you just have to use the most effective one. I like being a dyke. It suggests something that's strong. How do you feel about the term non-gay? <laughs> Whatever you want to call yourself. Actually, <laughs> it covers a multitude of sins, frankly, given that gay is now so specific. You could be polymorphously perverse. You could be all kinds of stuff out there. You could be ace. Who knows? You're, you're a lovely mystery compared to your companion on this podcast <laughs> that's so true to me non-gay just means straight like not exciting um, but that's because you're still in the binary you've been brought up in the binary i have i just bloody love all this youth stuff that's going on now where people, <laughs> people are recognizing that labels are just labels lisa thanks so much for coming on the podcast you're lovely thank you for having me thanks for listening babes do the admin and support gay and non-gay visit gaynongay.com slash donate <laughs>